You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Jakub Polchowski, PhD, head of the Eastern European Department in the Institute of Central Europe in Lublin. Political Periscope Has the Ukrainian counteroffensive started? Yes, of course. It started uh, not um, last week, but some time ago. Because what we what we could see during the last a few weeks at least, I think, it is a counteroffensive. But uh, of course, it's not a counteroffensive that probably many people, uh, many observers uh, um, could expect. Because there was so much noise about this upcoming counteroffensive, uh, I think that uh, from the beginning of this of this year, many people, uh, many experts, politicians, public opinion in different countries, they they talked about uh, uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive on and on. Ukrainians, on the other hand, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean uh, the, the the political elites of of Ukraine, they realize how much is at stake. And how important uh, is this is this counteroffensive uh, for Ukraine? At the same time, they realize that Ukraine has no resources, enough resources, human resources or equipment resources, etc., to organize, you know, something big, something uh, an offensive, uh, uh, you know, a kind of we we know from World War II, for example, with millions of soldiers, thousands of tanks and aircraft, etc., etc. Ukraine is not able to do it. And Ukraine has to do something, has to do something for, for, for many reasons, uh, to keep up the morale of the nation and to show to the West, it's very important to the Western societies and to the Western governments, to the Western elites, that Ukraine is, 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 is strong. Because if Ukraine doesn't show anything like this to the West, the West will be, and it's inevitable, I'm afraid, uh, you know, the support for Ukraine from the West, which is uh, the support is uh, absolutely necessary for Ukraine to fight this war and to win this war. If war is long and long, if it prolongs, I think that uh, the this, this support uh, from the West will be lower and lower and this enthusiasm for, for supporting Ukraine uh, uh, will be decreasing. So this is why Ukraine has to do something. And I think that this, this counteroffensive uh, is ongoing. As I said, it started weeks ago, but it, it, it's not a traditional offensive, as, as we said. Now, it's uh, first of all, in my opinion, it's hybrid counteroffensive uh, because we could see, you know, drones attack on Moscow. We can see uh, every day, almost every day, some burning uh, facilities in the territory of the Russian Federation. Uh, we could see uh, the raid of these Russian forces uh, fighting on the side of, of Ukraine on the territory of the Russian Federation. It's typical hybrid warfare. And this is what Ukrainians, uh, I believe, uh, have learned from the Russians from the Crimea annexation, from the um, uh, Donbass operations in 2015 and 16. I think this is the way the Ukrainians are going to conduct this counteroffensive. Of course, um, with uh, some military operations that are also are being conducted right now. But what is important, I think we should take a look at this. 
um, and think about it. Ukrainians are very careful about information campaign, about about informations, about uh, this counteroffensive. Uh, I think it's not a coincidence because so far before they have been informing about uh, many things. Now it's uh, it's silence. So what are the main goals of this ongoing offensive? Uh, we don't know that exactly because uh, I think it's not many people, not many people even in Ukraine know uh, uh, what is the plan, what is the strategic plan. Because as I said, there is a lot at stake, so it must be kept secret, uh, of course. But I believe that uh, these uh, hybrid operations will be uh, will be continued. Uh, will be continued all the time to make an impact on uh, on the Russian morale, on on the political and um, uh, social situation in Russia, which is not very uh, uh, very good, in fact, uh, this situation. And on the other hand, speaking of the military operations, uh, of course, uh, I don't think it's Ukraine will try to push out all the Russian forces from the Ukrainian territory, because uh, I don't think it's possible right now. I think this will be more uh, more of a maneuver war and a lot of um, strikes or, or limited operations at some directions, not, uh, not of course, not along the, the, all the front line, because all the front line between Russian and Ukrainian forces is about uh, 1,400 kilometers long. That is, this is impossible to make a breakthrough along such a long front line. So I think there will be limited strikes, isolating uh, Russian forces, Russian units, uh, psychological warfare, uh, diplomatic campaign. This is, this is another thing we can, we can see, both uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky and all the diplomacy, Ukrainian diplomacy, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, etc., etc. They travel a lot, they appeal to different countries, they try to show uh, the Ukrainian point of view in different parts of the world, especially in these parts of the world that um, are not very supportive of this Ukrainian point of view. So I think this is altogether, this is what we may call a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Speaking about those parts of the world which are not very supportive of Ukraine, uh, we've observed the visit of some African states leaders in Kiev and they denied in a way the attack that was ongoing during their visit. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's quite strange. It's it's not good from the Ukrainian point of view because uh, you know there may be some doubts suddenly that oh well Ukrainians say about Russian attacks on on uh, on Ukrainian territory on Ukrainian cities including the capital city the Kiev and some guests from the outside come and they say no there is there is no attacks. I don't get the point why it happened. Perhaps they, they didn't see, they couldn't observe these attacks, or maybe, and I think it's quite a probable scenario, <laughs> they expected something different. Uh, perhaps maybe they expected something like, you know, World War II air raids with thousands of uh, Russian aircraft uh, dropping bombs, thousand bombs on Kiev. Of course, it doesn't look like this. Uh, these are uh, single rocket, uh, usually a single rocket uh, drone uh, uh, attacks. And of course, in a city like Kiev, which is a, a couple of million uh, metropolis, you don't have to, to see, to hear all the attacks that, that take place depending on where you are in the city. But so it's, it looks strange in any way. Especially during the day when there is traffic and much uh, noise. You've mentioned decreasing support 
for Ukraine, for military aid for Ukraine, uh, we can also observe it even in Poland, uh, especially now that the uh, election campaign is starting. Uh, we even have some openly pro-Russian political forces, although they are very, very small Fortunately. Yeah, in Poland, they are very, very, very small, um, so far, at least. But yeah, this is, you mentioned the uh, elections. Uh, yes, we have election, uh, parliamentary election in Poland uh, this year, this, this autumn. But Poland is not the only country to hold the election in the, the, this year. So the election will be in, in, in different countries on different levels. And of course, uh, Russia uh, tries to take advantage of, of this. Russia tries to promote pro-Russian forces, not only in, in Poland, in, in, in many in, in many countries and in many places, but it's nothing new. Russia has been doing it for decades, uh, in fact. For example, if we look back to the 80s, suddenly in the Western Europe, uh, we had in the 80s a development of Pacific anti-war movements. Obviously, they, they were uh, supported and they were financed from Moscow. Now, now we know that, it's not a secret. And it was, of course, strictly connected to NATO, to uh, American missiles, installed in, in the Western Europe. So, suddenly, the anti-war movements uh, appeared uh, back then in, in the Western Europe. Now, it's a very similar situation. So, uh, Russia uses, uh, again, the same instrument, uh, the so-called anti-war movements, including in Poland. They are not anti-war movements, in fact. They are pro-Russian, even if these people who participate in this, these movements uh, um, don't believe it or don't know it, that they are pro-Russian. They are, in fact. They are not uh, anti-war. They are. Uh, they are pro-Russian, and of course, Russia will. Uh, I think will keep up this policy. Is there an effective way to counter it? Information, information, information. Uh, we have to inform people. We have to, you know, knowledge, knowledge and education. Unfortunately, I can't see any any other effective tool, effective uh, instrument. You know, uh, the problem is, and Russia knows that very well, that uh, the West is democratic. If the West is democratic, it means that we have many freedoms. For example, uh, freedom of speech. So you can say whatever you want in the West. You can establish whatever movement or a political group uh, you want. Uh, you you can uh, uh, promote any opinion you want, etc. And of course, Russia uses uh, uses this feature of the Western civilization. Uh, what is important? It's impossible, vice versa. There is no freedom of speech in Russia, so we cannot use the same instrument in Russia. We cannot, for example, promote uh, you know establishing anti-war movement in Russia or democratic movement in Russia because they will go to jail. We cannot we cannot send to to jail uh, people who are pro-Russian because we are democratic and you know you can have different opinions, different views in uh, in democracy. That's the problem. So maybe the democracy is not the best system in times of war. Uh, yeah, it was said many times uh, that uh, uh, during the war, strong men, uh, strong ruling elites are better. Uh, but I don't believe we should take it as granted. Well, take a look at Putin. Is he really so effective as a, as a strong man and as a dictator uh, during a wartime? I don't. I don't think so. He's he's effective, and even even the Russians, especially Russian political and financial elites, uh, can see that. Here in Poland, uh, already three times, there's been the Congress of the People's Deputies of Russia. 
and those Russians who want to create um, a temporary parliament after the Putin. What are the perspectives of Putin's fall and of changing the political system in Russia? To be honest, I'm not very optimistic about um, about it. Well, I mean that there will be a change of of a person who is in charge. Yes, there will be a change because Putin is considered uh, more and more to be weak. And uh, in in Russia, you cannot be in charge if you are weak. They need someone strong. So probably sooner or later, uh, Putin will be replaced. Uh, but I do not think, unfortunately, that he will be replaced with uh, someone who is a Democrat, uh, who is a liberal, and who will try to change Russian mentality, to step away from thinking in terms of imperialism. I'm afraid it, it's not going to happen. I'm afraid that uh, if Putin will be replaced by someone, it will be again someone similar to mentally, uh, similar to Putin. Those visible tensions between Prigozhin and Wagner's group and uh, the Ministry of Defense, uh, Putin himself, do you think they are real or is it some um, game, some theater? Probably both. Uh, I think that both. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of tensions within uh, the Russian elites, financial elites, political, military uh, elites. And this is a symptom of these tensions. But anyway, we should notice one thing. Uh, there is a lot of tensions. There is a lot of criticism. But President Putin is never criticized. He's, he, he's not the one who is criticized. The elites, they fight between each other, they criticize the, each other, etc., but uh, they do not attack Putin. And that shows, uh, the, I think, the real nature of this, of this political system. Uh, you cannot criticize, you know, the Tsar, because Tsar, no matter how weak he is, uh, he still has all instrumentarium to punish you. So yes, there is a fight, you know, a dogfight uh, between uh, elites uh, and within the elites. Uh, but I think it's a mistake of the West to think that uh, it will change the Russian system. In the last days, one of the well-known, prominent American newspapers published on Instagram photos from Bilgorod region telling a sad story of poor Russian civilians under Ukrainian pounding. And uh, there is this problem, there is this question of Ukrainian attacks on Russian soil, uh, Ukrainian attacks on cities, not all the rockets, not all the UAVs uh, hit their targets right some of them hit uh, civilian buildings and there is always a question should we support it is it good that ukraine is also attacking russian civilian people but it's not ukraine that attacks uh, russian civilian people this is this hybrid warfare uh, conducted right now by ukraine but if we look back to 2014 15 16 it was exactly the policy and the modus operandi that was used by by russia who was fighting ukrainian army in uh, in crimea in, and in donbas not russians separatists people from uh, ukraine from the separatist regions and it's it's exactly the same this time uh, there is no ukrainian army on the russian territory they are russians they are russians so what's the problem just like in 2015 russia claimed uh, there were there were no russian forces on the ground in ukraine it's the same What's the problem? There are no Ukrainian forces in Russia. And speaking of drones and etc. and, and some, some attacks. Well, um, who started the war? It's Russia that started the war. And uh, uh, Russians uh, never felt f for years, for decades. Uh, they didn't have a war at home, at their own territory. And now they are very surprised that, uh, oh, uh, uh, 
this is us in our territory drones explode uh, we had some uh, aerial attacks etc etc this is again a part of a hybrid warfare this is a psychological uh, warfare in this case and there is also one argument oftenly used by russians and uh, well pro-russian um, states for example in africa it's very common to um, blame the west for colonialism and praise russia as anti-colonial state uh, that had never colonized africa or um, south america also the western crimes against humanity war crimes are uh, brought up as an argument why the West is bad and Russia is maybe not so bad as it appears. Take a look at the map of the world and at Russia, especially. And uh, take a look at the map of Russia from, um, so to say, 15th or 16th century. How big was Russia in the 16th century and how big was, for example, at as the Soviet Union in the in the 20th century. Well, by the way, it's still the biggest, the largest uh, state uh, on the on this planet. Um, do you really think that it was peaceful? Uh, uh, Russia was able to grow so big uh, peacefully? No, it was it was conquer. Of course, the the West um, did a lot of bad things and uh, uh, committed a lot of sins. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but of course, it's not true that uh, Russia is in any way uh, better uh, than the West. And you know, this thinking uh, in some part of Africa or Asia or South America, uh, the thinking about the West in terms of colonialism and uh, about Russia in terms of anti-colonial uh, attitude is of course a part of the, the cold war heritage because this is the narrative that the soviet union used trying to find uh, the allies in south america in africa in its fight uh, rivalry against uh, the west so it's not surprising that they, they still coming back to this narrative and coming back to this story that uh, the west is bad because it's uh, colonial uh, oppressive and Russia is, is good because Russia fights for, you know, the right of, of nations to self-determinate and etc. etc. It is, of course, not true. Uh, it is a, a story uh, figured out by, by, by the Soviets and now continued by, by Russia. But uh, this story is, uh, is very popular in, uh, in many places. We can even see it during those uh, congresses of uh, nations of the post-Russia as, as they call them, free nations of post-Russia, and the nations uh, that are held in this so-called prison of nations, as um, Russian Federation is. Yes, of course, this is what we said just before a second. The Soviet Union uh, was called the prison of nations, but the Tsars uh, Russia uh, also. Uh, Russia was always a very oppressive state. We know that uh, because we are neighbors of, uh, of Russia, but... Uh, we have to realize that many nations in many different states, countries, continents, they don't have such a vision of Russia. You know, for example, in India, in India, people say it's not our war. This is uh, your European war. You Europeans, you started World War One, you started World War Two, and now what? Uh, are you trying to start World War Three? It's not our problem. This is, this is your problem, your Europeans. We don't want to have anything in, uh, in common with it. And we remember what West uh, did to us. And we remember that the Soviet Union helped us. This is a, a perspective of many countries, and we have to consider it to realize this is their point of view. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. This was the Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 